if you understand that your value is in your ability to connect on a human level with students, respond organically to their needs, and really facilitate learning, you don't worry about technology replacing you. You figure out how to lean on technology to make time for those really high impact engagements with students. Hi, I'm Katie Martin, and this is the Learner Centered Collaborative Podcast. I'm an author, mom, educator, and lifelong learner on a mission to create authentic, inclusive, and equitable learning experiences that puts learners at the center. At the Learner Centered Collaborative, we are guided by the persistent truth that a learner-centered approach is the foundation for a successful, thriving learning community. We are passionate about transforming visions for learning into actionable practices that positively impact learners and learning. During our time together, we'll explore challenges in education today, set ambitious goals for what is possible, and make space to celebrate the bright spots along the way. I'll share vetted practices and strategies that I hope will inform, inspire, and ignite your learner-centered journey. Together, we can empower all learners to actively engage in the world as their best selves. Let's get started. Welcome, Catelyn. I'm so excited to have this conversation today. I've read your books. I've seen you speak live in workshops and keynotes, um, and I've just learned so much from you, as I know so many people have. Um, but we recently just connected in a group that Katie Novak has put together mm -hmm. and have a lot of connections. And so I'm just excited to dive into the conversation. Yeah. You're a California girl like I me. Am. I am. <laughs> uh, you've been a high school English teacher. I was a middle school English teacher. Um, teacher of the year, best-selling author, keynote speaker, a mom. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Um, and now you work as a full-time coach for in blended learning and supporting educators um, and just making a tremendous impact. But I'd love for you to say hi to everyone and tell us about some of the experiences that have really shaped your um, your journey as a learner, as a, as a teacher and um, the work you're doing today. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. And my, I always joke that my path through education has just been this series of happy accidents. Uh, as a student in school, I'm sad to report that I didn't have a lot of really engaging dynamic experiences. I don't remember a lot of my teacher's names. If you had asked me in high school, like, can you imagine being a teacher? I would have like laughed you into the next room. There's just no way I could imagine myself wanting to spend the rest of my life in education. I was really looking to get out of high school, go to college. Um, for a long time, I was going to go to law school and really pivoted my last year in college and decided not to do that. And so when I was trying to decide what am I going to do with my English credential, um, I actually, or my English degree, I was actually taking a few months off and working as a barista in Ireland with my best friend, Sarah. And it was while I was in Ireland um, on this kind of four month hiatus from college because I was going to graduate early. Um, I decided I want a job where I can travel. I'm loving this experience. I want a job where I can write because I was just writing and journaling all throughout our trip. And I thought maybe I'll go into education. And I remember coming home and I barely made the deadline to apply to UC Santa Barbara's credential and master's program. And my whole family just was 
dumbstruck by this choice. They thought it was really not what they would expect from me. My mom definitely gave me some side eye because she is an attorney. And she was like, are you kidding that you're going to go into education? And the, the, the implied statement was you don't have the temperament for education, right? You're a little type A, you're maybe not the most like outwardly nurturing human being. You don't have a lot of patience. And I went for it anyway. And my early years in the classroom, I've, I've talked about this a lot, were frustrating. I remember the first five years, I, I just felt like this is not the classroom environment I had imagined or daydreamed about in credential school. The kids did not seem excited to be at school generally, in my class specifically. They weren't engaging. They weren't taking risks. They didn't want to talk. And I definitely felt like, gosh, maybe I've made this like enormous mistake. I'm clearly failing to create this classroom I had imagined. And as a type A overachiever, that did not feel good. And I remember thinking, I, I might need to find a different job. Like, I don't know if I can do this. And it was kind of in those moments of desperation where I pressed pause on my teaching career went on maternity leave for a year to have my first child and taught some online college level writing courses. And it was there that my interest in technology was peaked. Um, I could see kids online kind of engaging in unique ways. Um, I was really intrigued by online discussions in those early days. And so when I went back to the classroom, I figured I'll give it one more year. I've got nothing to lose. I'm just going to use this space like it's my own laboratory and I'm going to tinker with things. I'm, it was very low tech times at the high school I was teaching at, but I decided to start kind of playing with the devices walking through the door in my kids' pockets. And it was magical. It was nothing short of magical. What ended up happening when I started really shifting the focus to learners, engaging the few devices we had, getting them collaborating, kind of pursuing their own questions, finding their own answers and obviously so much so that now I spend my days like trying to get teachers to really think about blending online and offline learning in really dynamic ways. I love that so much. There's so many things that just so many points of connection, but I was laughing when you were saying your mom's kind of giving you the side eye, like you don't mm -hmm. have the temperament. <laughs> uh, when I graduated college or when I, when I was in college, similar, I was a human development major. Mm -hmm. I just love how people work and I want to know more about people but I was adamant that I was not going to be a teacher and mm -hmm. I was not going to be a car salesman. Those were what my parents are. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what anything else exists, but I don't yeah. want to do these two things. And slowly, but surely I started really enjoying my classes and my senior year. Also, I made that change like last minute to yeah. liberal studies so that I could go get my teaching credential. My mom was a third grade teacher. So I was like, well, I guess since I'm going to be a teacher, I'll be a third grade teacher. And my mom's friend was like, you are going to teach third grade with that attitude. I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, there's no way that like, you don't have that temperament. So that's mm -hmm. so funny. I ended up teaching middle school, which I was very well suited for and absolutely loved, but, but definitely had a very similar or some like some key points in there. Um, but fascinating. I didn't realize the connection of you teaching online school and then coming back and, and tinkering. Um, I just love that idea that really thinking about you have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. And I think if more educators felt like that or taught like that, 
we would see so many more of these practices come into play that we really want to see in our own learning and for our students in the classroom. Absolutely. I think it was the first year I really, I didn't let fear make decisions for me. I really embraced this idea of you don't need to be the expert. Why don't you just be the lead learner? Why don't you show them that you're showing up every single day and you're trying something new? And I was super honest with them. We would try something new and I would say, I've never done this before. I'm not sure how this is going to go. Like, let's give it a try. And then we'll come back together and we'll debrief. And you guys can tell me, what did you like? What did you not like? How might we reimagine this if we do it again? And so it almost became like, through that process, we all developed this really close bond as like learning communities, each of my classes. And I think as they saw me experiment and stumble and fail and iterate, then it was a lot less scary for them to do those things in my class as well. Admit that they didn't understand something or they didn't know how to do something and ask for support and, and kind of tinker through things as well. And it was just it was so exciting. And, and I realized that this whole like impression that I had early in my career that like, you have to be the expert, you have to know everything and have everything figured out before you do it with kids was just absolute nonsense and actually robbed my students of being these active, engaged members of our class community. Yeah, it sounds like as soon as you stopped pretending that you had mm-hmm. all the answers, they could then engage and, and everyone could stop pretending that they were playing this role and just actually lean into the learning. Yeah, like let's and, be our authentic selves in this room. <laughs> yeah, and let's actually learn together. And I think, I'm sure you hear this all the time too. It's like, well, I this is the teacher I think I have to be. This is the story I'm telling myself of what a good teacher is. And this is how I feel like I have to show up. And many teachers feel like, I'm type A. I want to do, I want to be perfect. I want to make sure that everything is, you know, really organized and structured. And you've shared, you have that temperament, but oh, you yeah. leaned in. So I'm curious, what are the, like, if you can think about that first year, what are those like key lessons that you even learned? Well, I realized that as soon as I stopped trying to be perfect, I was a lot more approachable as an instructor. I also realized that I, I shouldn't just be asking, what are my students going to learn in a lesson? But it was like, what am I going to learn from my students in this lesson by listening and observing and engaging with them, really trying to understand what they needed more of in terms of support and guidance, um, where they were really thriving, where I wanted to continue pushing them further. I really became this learner, not just in that I was trying new things, but I was actively seeking to learn from the individuals in my class. What do they need? How could I be effective in supporting their individual progress? And and that made the whole experience of teaching so much more engaging and interesting from my perspective, because I think most of us go into education because we really truly love to learn, but we are constantly fighting against these very rigid mental models of what we think teaching and learning looks like. And what I experienced as a student in school was I was expected to sit in my seat, stare in my teacher's general directions quietly and take notes, follow directions. I didn't have an engaging experience and and my teachers did kind of seem to know everything. And I was very much mimicking that in my early years. And quite frankly, my students were responding to me the way I responded to those teachers. Because as I said, I don't really have a lot of 
the wonderful memories from school and like teachers who just, you know, I had a handful who did inspire me. Um, but for the most part, I don't really remember many of them. They didn't leave a lasting impression on me. Yeah. Your experience resonates so deeply with me. It is like, these are the roles we're supposed to play. We're not really engaging. We're going through the motions. Um, and, and there's not a lot of joy in the teaching part and there's Mm -hmm. not a lot of joy and actual impact in the learning part. And Mm -hmm. we continue to just like play that role. So I love how you have disrupted that, um, and, and created a new model and, and new realities for so many students, um, and educators. So we, there's a lot of jargon that we use in education, right? We're (laughs) always throwing around words. And every time I'm visiting classrooms or talking to educators, I find that we use the same words for actually different practices, Mm -hmm. personalized learning, right? Like people say that all the time. For some people, it means sit in front of a computer. Mm -hmm. And for some people, it means really deeply understanding strengths and interests. So you're a blended learning expert. You've done research. You've really built those models in your classroom and support educators. So can you share what your model of blended learning is and what you mean by that? Yeah. And I appreciate this question. I mean, obviously I wrote my first book on blended learning in 2011, but even now, like when the pandemic started and teachers are being knocked online and there are all these different versions of learning in school taking place, you know, concurrent classrooms, hybrid, and then it was all just being meshed together under this umbrella of blended learning. And I was like, so frustrated because then a lot of teachers who hadn't really heard much about blended learning before the pandemic and who were going through a really challenging growth moment with all the changes, just have a negative connotation toward this phrase. And it makes me crazy because when I define blended learning, whether I'm working with a leadership team or coaches or teachers, I define it as active engaged learning online combined with active engaged learning offline. And the goal is to shift control over the learning experience from teacher to learner, specifically giving them more control over these four elements of their learning, time, place, pace, and path. So blended learning, the phrase itself is kind of like this umbrella and within the umbrella are all of these different models. And so you have station rotation model, you have the whole group rotation, flip classroom, playlist model. You even have like the, the, the five E's model can be used to blend active engaged learning online and offline choice boards can be used to blend active engaged learning offline and online. I started playing with the concept of choose your learning path adventure. So there was this kind of original taxonomy of models that I think is starting to kind of grow and develop over time, which is really exciting. But for me, the most important part of that definition has nothing to do with online or offline learning. It has to do with positioning the student as active agent in the learning experience, really shifting them to the center of the learning, right? By giving them more control. And I get that that's, that's scary. I think as a type A, as a perfectionist, um, as an overachiever, I like to have control it is really scary to let go and let kids have control and, and trust that they're going to make good decisions with that control. But ultimately what we know about human motivation is that autonomy, agency, competence, relatedness, these are all critical. And when kids don't have any control over the learning experience, there's very little incentive for them to be motivated. Right. They just, and a lot of people now, especially are like, my kids have just shut down. 
Yeah. My kids, you know, they, they don't have the stamina they used to. And I'm not saying that that's not true. A lot of us are figuring out actually, how do I get myself into this? But also yeah. I think we're grappling with doing things that really matter. I know adults I talk to are like, I'm not doing that anymore. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't serve me. I don't need to drive into the office or mm-hmm. I don't need to spend all this time in meetings. Mm-hmm. We're thinking differently about how we prioritize our time. And we can't underestimate that our young learners are doing the same thing, right? We're trying to shove the genie back in the box almost of like, you've had flexibility, you've had autonomy, you've got to go to the bathroom or drink water whenever you want. And now we're like sticking you back in a box and saying, let's continue on like we used to do and forget that ever happened in some cases. And a lot of kids are revolting or frankly, just like disengaging. Yeah. Yeah. And I think teachers often forget like in these rooms and I get it. I think this year, maybe more than any other in my memory, teachers have been under just bombastic pressure because of the like conversation around learning loss. And you have this, just like, we already had these really wide spectrums of skills and abilities and language proficiencies and needs and preferences. And then you take this crazy two and a half years of just disrupted schooling, um, which is kind of exacerbated the, the needs in a class, but it's like, I think they started the year being like, okay, we've got to catch kids up. We've got to get them back on track. And maybe there wasn't the, the time invested on the front end for that real true, like culture building, that true community building that was so necessary after so much social isolation, um, after so much trauma. And then in addition to that, as you're saying, we, you know, they went from two and a half years of like, more of a Netflix approach to life. You do what you want. You do as much as you want when you want, like, and then you put them back in a classroom, which is like, they're stuck in network television where it's like, (laughs) you don't control what you learn, how you learn, what you create to demonstrate your learning. And yeah, like why, why would they want to engage? Yeah. I mean, that's the perfect example. Right. And I think that, so building on that, there's a lot, a lot, someone asked me recently, like, has there been any change? And I think there has like a lot more technology is expected and used in the classroom Mm -hmm. that I think prior to the pandemic, we saw many systems that fared better because they were leveraging technology from the beginning. But more and more people are understanding like, oh, this isn't just a fad. It's actually helpful in the classrooms. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I think that, but then there's also been this other reaction that kids were on too much technology. We're going to just like totally dismiss it. So there, there's an extreme I've seen, like we're all technology now and we're just like reorganizing the classroom where kids are just on the computer all day to not at all. We can't, we can't use technology at all because we want face-to-face interaction. So what I appreciate again about your approach is that technology doesn't seem to be the driver. It's not the, like, it's not the thing there's, you know, people sometimes focus on the program or the device or the newest apps and all those things that can be flashy but your approach to blended learning is much more about the kids in the classroom, the desired outcomes. And like you said, leveraging those tools to create more agency for the students in your classroom. Yeah. So, um, as, as these, you know, as your practices have evolved, what are some of the, the key strategies or ways that you've seen this be really effective in classrooms? I mean, 
I absolutely understand the concern about time spent sitting in front of a screen. And I'm a mom of two kids. I, we have, I have a device basket in my house. The devices go in there at certain moments in the, the day because I want my kids to unplug. But I think it really speaks, that fear speaks to the way in which we use technology. And as a coach and as a professional learning facilitator, what I see a lot is technology used to isolate learners. Put on your headphones, watch this video. Put on your headphones, like work with this adaptive software or this online practice program. And it's not to say you can't do those things, but in those moments, the technology is the focus. And what I really think the, the missed opportunity is, is that technology can be this incredibly powerful tool to connect learners, to foster conversation, to really aid collaboration, to get them thinking kind of creatively outside of the box, creative problem solving. And so I think the, 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 the idea that technology is the focus or the, the value add is, I, I don't think that's accurate. I think what, val what the value technology really can bring to a learning environment is that shift of control to learners, giving them access to more resources, giving them access to more tools and design opportunities. And so when I work with teachers and we're designing like an online station and a station rotation, or we're talking about the online learning activities and a whole group rotation or a playlist, I am often challenging them to design through the lens of the four C's of 21st century learning. If we're going to use tech, if we're going to have kids engaging online, can we really prioritize critical thinking, communication, collaboration, creativity? I think if we design the online learning through that lens more consistently, we wouldn't have kids staring at a screen. The tech would be there, but it would be there to aid a or serve a more dynamic purpose, which is learners driving their own learning, learners working together to make meaning and construct knowledge. And that's what I want to see more of. And it was interesting. I had a really fascinating conversation with Paul France, who's fabulous and does a lot of work around personalized learning. And his focus is on like humanizing personalized learning, which I such a big fan of that message. And he really encourages teachers when they're using tech to consider like four questions. Does the technology minimize complexity? Does it enhance personal like power and potential of the learner? Does it help us to reimagine learning? And does it help us to strengthen like human connection in the classroom? And for me, those are great guiding questions as well, because I think you know, if we're designing through the four C's, we're thinking about tech and like really considering those questions, I don't think we'd have parents and community members quite so concerned about like screen time because the screen is serving a bigger purpose. Yeah, so many good points there. I think one of the things that for us as learner-centered, you know, is really seeing that it's about whole child outcomes. It's really understanding that we're not just trying to get to standardized metrics of reading and math scores, that we're developing people who are thinkers, who are collaborators, problem solvers, like you said, and, and using those as the driver. Mm -hmm. And for many years, I have seen the constructivist camp be on one side, right? This is like the people who are thinking about teaching and learning, problem solving <laughs> over here. And then there's like the tech team, right? Mm -hmm. Who are like, I'm going in like 50 apps in 50 minutes. And we're thinking about the latest and greatest. And it's like innovation, 
and then stuck in there. It's just, they've been on like competing ends. And I really believe that the future of education, like you were saying, are when we braid these two together, we leverage what we know about the best practices and pedagogical um, strategies, and we leverage technology intentionally, but the outcomes are really the driver, the things that we want for young learners. And to your point about families, if we just get clear on what we want for kids in classrooms and schools and, and beyond the K-12 experience, I think we would have much more alignment because mm -hmm. I always hear like, oh, well, we can't do this because parents only care about test scores. We can't do this because parents only care about this and they don't want us to be on the screen. Well, if they don't have information yep. about what we're doing and why, and they just see a stack of worksheets coming home, or they just see the kids are going through X, Y, and Z program, of course, there's questions. But if we get on the same page about what we want, we align those learning experiences and use of technology, I think we would be much more on the same page across the board than mm -hmm. against one another. Yeah, it's so funny that you make that comment about constructivism because in my doctoral thesis and in my work, I often refer to my definition of blended learning, which has a lot of overlaps with um, Staker and Horn's 2012 definition, but I always call it like a constructivist uh, definition that plays on that initial one because I really do want all of the decisions we make about blending online and offline learning to be grounded in solid pedagogy. I want teachers to be thinking about what are the learning objectives here and what are the needs of the, the humans in this physical environment and how am I blending these two, like the best aspects of face-to-face -face and the, the, the affordances of online learning and the, the flexibility of online learning to really create these opportunities for students to construct their own meaning, to construct their own knowledge. Um, and I agree, I get really frustrated because sometimes when you go to a conference, the sessions that have like people bursting out the door are 50 tech tools in 50 minutes. And I'm just like, okay, there might be some great tools in there, but like, if we're not talking about how you use them and, you know, I just feel like the conversation is pretty shallow. So I do agree. You need these things working in tandem to really shift instructional practices and improve learning for all students and the, and the clarity around why we're yeah. shifting to blended learning, that value proposition. Like when I work with leadership teams, that's where we start the conversation. Like what is the value? How do we articulate this in a clear, concise, inspiring way for parents, students, community members, like board members? Like we have to have clear messaging. And we also just like, just like you give students a rubric, hopefully at the beginning of a complex assignment. So it serves as a roadmap. We need to create clarity about what are our teachers and our learners actually working toward if we are going to adopt kind of a shift to blended learning and then make that really concrete for everybody. Yeah, I mean, that is so clear. We just see people diving in. Oh, I bought this program. Mm -hmm. I remember um, in 2013-ish, I was at the University of San Diego and we had the center and a lot of superintendents, a lot of systems were like, we just went one-to-one. -one that's going to change everything, right? Like it was the like, okay, uh -huh. we're one-to-one -one, now schools transformed. I'd be like, well, what are you trying to accomplish? What does learning look like? And there was just these conversations that, oh gosh, we thought just buying the technology was going to fix it. That was the very technical change. Yep. 
right? But, but really clearly understanding one, what those new goals are because technology is so prevalent in society and why we need to include it in the classroom, but ultimately the new skills that young people need. So I often reference like the World Economic Forum and the skills that are really critical in the workforce mm-hmm. instead of backwards designing. And I'm sure as an English teacher, you've experienced this. Well, I have to teach that book or I have to teach this five paragraph essay or how to head a paper so the teacher next year will be happy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like we're designing so the teacher next year doesn't think you're a bad teacher instead of designing <laughs> for like college career life and really mm-hmm. preparing young people to have those skills not just like, okay, I, I can pass you on and feel like the next teacher is going to be okay with it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I just think, yeah. So the more we can get clear on why we're doing this, then the technology becomes much more impactful. Yeah. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit because, um, so once we understand why thinking about designing the experience, you wrote, um, gosh, has it been over a year since you wrote UDL and blended learning with Katie? Yeah. Yeah, that came out over a year ago. Over a year ago. So like as people are navigating the pandemic and still trying to figure out um, modes of learning, but in that you talked about um, designing your new house after losing it in the fire, which Mm -hmm. had to be horrific and I'm sure very, very hard, Mm -hmm. but you managed to pull some lessons from it. Um, And you talked about what you learned from the architect. I would love for you to share a little <laughs> bit about like those experiences and designing learning experiences that um, might resonate with educators. Yeah. So it was, so we did lose our house in 2017 and we had the decision to make, like, do you just go to the city and get the old plans and rebuild the old house? Or do you rebuild from scratch? Do you work with the architect? It's going to add time. It's going to add expense, but then you basically get the house of your dreams. Um, and so we decided to work with an architect and it was so fascinating because we had this converse, we had a series of conversations, me and the architect, and he asked so many questions. He asked questions about what I liked about my old house, how I used this space, um, how I envisioned my days and what activities I really liked and how do I feel about windows and see like all of these things. So he strove to try to understand me as the person who was going to live in this house and have to experience it. And it was through, it was through the work with him where I really began to kind of solidify this kind of analogy of teacher as architect, because it's the teacher who really, you want to understand the learners, their needs, their preferences, their background knowledge and past experience. And then we want to try to design a learning experience that really positions them to make the meaning, right? Because the architect didn't come here and pick up a hammer and build my house. He created a blueprint and outline. It was the contractors, the subcontractors who actually showed up and did all the work. Yeah. Yeah. So the architect never came. He never like picked up anything to actually build. It was the contractors and the subcontractors. And in the same way, it's really the teacher who's architecting the learning experience, which quite frankly, it takes more time. It takes more intentionality to design that kind of experience, but then the learners are positioned to make the meaning, to construct the knowledge, to work together, to put whatever it is together. Um, and I think that's the re- where the real magic happens. And then if we design we really invest in the front end of that design and the architect piece. Um, And part of what an architect does too is 
really strives to remove barriers, right? They want the building to be accessible. They want it to be inclusive. And we want the same things for the learning experiences we're architecting. And then hopefully, because it's student-centered, because they're doing the heavy cognitive lift in the lesson, we are freed as the teacher to support the process, to really check in with learners and provide more small group individual support, scaffold, instruction, models, et cetera. And I think, yes, you have more time on the front end in terms of that design work, but you recoup time because of what you're able to do during the lesson, which is give feedback, collect data, maybe even conduct side-by-side -side assessments with your learners. So that's where I think that architect kind of analogy becomes really powerful. And I'd love to see more teachers investing in that design work. Yeah, I love that. And so I want to like share an experience. I just did some empathy interviews with students last week. And I've heard this time and time again, not only high school, middle school, but they say, so we now have a program and we're doing this online and my teacher never talks to me, right? So yeah. you're talking about feedback, you're talking about stuff, <laughs> but some too often the student experience is they come in, they do the program, and then the teacher is like correcting the work outside of the experience. Can you like dig into that a little bit? How did you manage this in your classroom? Yeah, I, you know, what's fascinating is when we're in this moment as we are right now, where we have just huge numbers of teachers either leaving the profession or really seriously questioning, can I stay in this profession? I think we all need to remember why most of us got into teaching and it was to work with students. It was to kind of ignite this love of learning and to support them in their learning journeys. And technology really should be used to free teachers from feeling kind of trapped at the front of the room. There's no reason if we're going to say the same thing the same way to everybody, then let's make a video. Let's give students control over the pace at which they move through that video. They can pause, rewind, rewatch, and then let's use our time in class in much more dynamic ways. So to like to, for that human connection, because right. I think the teachers who are really kind of still scared of technology, it is that fear of technology is going to replace me. And technology can only replace you if you think your value is being the expert in the room. If you understand that your value is in your ability to connect on a human level with students, respond organically to their needs, and really facilitate learning, you don't worry about technology replacing you. You figure out how to lean on technology to make time for those really high impact engagements with students. So in a station rotation, for example, you know, station rotation has students kind of um, rotating through a series of online and offline learning activities, which hopefully position them as that active agent. Right. Then you have your teacher led where you might be working with anywhere from six to eight students at a time. A lot of teachers are like, oh, and my teacher led, that's me giving direct instruction. It can be if you differentiate that direct instruction, but it can also be like, hey, kids are working on a formal piece of writing. They're working on a performance task. They're working on a project. Let's dedicate that teacher time to giving them 
focused, actionable feedback on this piece that is in progress. So students can keep working. They're happy. You don't have to do it all right. at home. And we're diving into digital documents or we're carouseling around the table to give them that real focused feedback. And then that's work we're not taking home. And that's a moment where a kid feels seen and supported in their work. If you're using a playlist, I always had, you know, at strategic moments in a, a playlist, I called them Tucker time, but it's just like a teacher check-in or a teacher conference where you hit that moment, you add your name to the queue. When the seat next to me is empty, you come take it. And we look at what have you done? What's the data telling us? How are you feeling? And what adjustments might we need to make to the work that you're doing to the playlist itself so that you keep making progress? And is there anything you need to help with, support with, feedback on? So it's like building in the human connection and not you know, not putting kids on computers so that we can like sit at our desk and grade or respond to emails, but really maximizing that time with learners in the classroom. Yeah. And the way that you just position that around like the synchronous versus asynchronous or whatever, but it's, it's intentionally using time instead of, like you said, sitting in front of the computer and then I'm going to grade while you're on the thing. Mm -hmm. Instead, I mean, as an English teacher, I remember early on bringing stacks of paper home with me and like giving all of this feedback okay. That was basically an autopsy, right? Because as soon as they got it back, they looked at it and threw it away. And instead, I hear you saying, I'm giving them feedback throughout the process. I'm building their skills throughout so that you, and it's like three, four minutes. You don't have to go oh, home yeah. to that at the end. They're learning through the process, but also you're building connection. You're seeing them, you're understanding their skills, and then being able to direct them where to spend their time in class versus letting them flail along and then having to or not do anything. And then right. all the essays are due. And I would be like, why doesn't a third of this class have anything right. to give me? So when I started building in real-time feedback stations, and I'll be honest, it wasn't like I am doing this because this is what's best for kids. Honestly, the first time I did it, I was like, I am so tired of taking this home. We're doing it in class. And so I had, you know, they had written their introductions already. And they, I said, okay, at the station, you guys are going to start body paragraph one. They had already seen the video on how to structure a body paragraph. So they're all writing. And I was like, I'm just going to look at your hook strategies and your thesis statements. I gave boom, boom, super quick feedback. Like, Hey, you might want to develop this. This is missing. Check out this video. And I got through all seven students in like 23 minutes and it was fast, but I had First of all, I didn't have any kids at the end who hadn't written everything, anything, because I was jumping in and out of documents probably three or four times during the writing process. I had multiple kids say, I've never gotten this much feedback. This is really helpful. And I was seeing them act on the feedback to improve the piece and having these kind of eureka moments of like, why on earth was I spending hours at the end when they had exactly the autopsy of covering their papers and comments that quite frankly, they don't care about because the essay is all done and they already have their grade. So right. it, it almost took me like going through the process to just really realize how incredibly valuable it was. The thing that strikes me about this is what you're talking about is validated in the research. We know when we talk about the learning process and too often we've formulized it or productized it, right? So I see so many people spend bazillions of dollars mm -hmm. and that's like not even really an exaggeration on 
formative assessment programs. Cause it's like, kids need feedback. We need to check, but it's all oriented to like, how are you going to do on a standardized test? Mm -hmm. And so when we structure feedback or formative assessment that way, that's not actually what the research says about formative assessment. It's what you're talking about. It's like in real time, side by side, where are you? How can I give you like your next steps, feedback on where you are, not like redlining your paper, mm -hmm. but like, have you thought about a hook? Where, like if your ideas would be more clear if they're X, Y, and Z. So the research around the practices, the constructive pedagogy that we know that we try and like, put in a product and standardize really ends up going against our end goals. Yeah. And I, you know, I make the statement all the time and I'm sure teachers have a whole bunch of different reactions to this. Um, but I tell them when we're designing for blended environments, I say, I would love to see teachers spend as much class time giving feedback as they give instruction, because I feel like you can tell kids all day long how to do stuff, but it's like when they're trying to do it, when they trip, they fall, they need support. They need that nudging of like, have you considered this? Could you develop this? Why do you think this? Grab another example to support this. It's like, that's how they're going to develop. It's us talking at them. You know, it, they do need instruction. I'm not saying they don't, but like, it's the feedback where they develop that confidence and they feel that support from, a, you know, an expert or person with expertise. Right. And it could be different people, right? There could be peers that have expertise. Yep. There could be community members. You know, you go beyond the writing process. We're talking about reading and writing connection, science. So there's all of the different or just the authentic integrated projects. We have to do things. Mm -hmm. We could sit and plan. And I talk about the same thing in professional learning all the time. We can sit back in our offices and plan. We can lesson plan all day long. But if you never actually test it with students, you never ever try out these little ideas, we aren't going to shift our practices in a way that really make that impact. Mm -hmm. We're going to sit there still thinking about it. And I think that same thing is true for students. Mm -hmm. So I could talk to you literally forever. I want to talk about the reading writing connection and all of that. You've, you've talked a lot about um, there's an upcoming book. You have another one with Katie and another one. You have a few books coming up. I know. <laughs> uh, it's awesome. I, I, I need to I need to like lean in and figure out your process. Obviously, you're good at being very efficient. Um, but this second book really builds on UDL and blended learning around um, shifting practices. And you're taught you talk about this in each of the chapters around how you shift from the teacher-led work um, workflow to the student-led workflow. There's yes. a lot of connections um, in evolving education. That was the premise of the book. It's how do we shift schools from a school-centered model to a learner-centered model? Mm -hmm. So I was giddy with joy reading your book and seeing the different um, shifts. And so we talked a little bit about feedback. I wanna talk as a, um, another English teacher um, this solitary endeavor for like reading as a solitary endeavor to reading for connection. I don't think this is just for English classrooms. I think this shift is about everybody. And so often we see it as like, you only learn to read and write in English, and then we do all the things in other subjects. I know. I hate that. <laughs> so, right. So like pretty passionate about this shift. So tell me more what it means. How do teachers make this shift from um, without creating mountains of work for themselves or really understanding how do we engage kids in the reading process, especially when they're all at different levels, they have different interests. Where would yeah. you, where do we dive in? 
I mean, I, I hear this complaint all the time. So yeah, the second, the second book really is about taking 10 of what we consider to be, you know, very teacher led, really time consuming and often super ineffective workflows and like reimagining them from a student centered perspective. And I hear a lot of frustration from teachers are like, my kids won't read, they won't read anything. And we know, I mean, YouTube videos are great. Um, you can lean on those for a lot of things, but you do have to be able to read to learn, especially in this day and age where we're changing, we're they're likely going to be changing careers. They're going to, you know, they're going to have to be like self-starters. And so we have to find ways to engage them around reading. But at least in my experience going into classrooms, the reading that's happening is still very much you know, if it's an informational text, like an article, it's like everybody's getting the same photocopied article. Everybody is being marched through it as a single class unit. And the teacher or pauses a novel. or a class novel. Exactly. Um, and then the teacher pauses periodically and like asks a question and basically the same few students answer the question. Everybody else is kind of tuning out. Yeah. And so whether it you know, we, we introduced some very explicit kind of structures. Like you can, here's how we could leverage a jigsaw to do this. Here's how we could use reciprocal teaching and give students very specific kind of roles as they're reading in a small group. And here's the structure of having them pause periodically to kind of like engage via the lens or their specific role. And so the idea is building stamina around reading by allowing students to one, make some key decisions about what they're reading mm -hmm. to giving them exposure to different strategies as they read and three connecting them to salt kind of small peer support networks as they're reading um i think there are also really fun ways to think about playing with something like a choose your reading path adventure where i was just coaching a teacher gosh, this was like three weeks ago now. And she has a lower level group and she's a science and they're like learning about the solar system. And she basically gave them like three different articles to choose from. So right off the bat, student agency. And then as they read the articles, there were three different strategies they could use to kind of process what they were reading from traditional annotations to kind of like a three, two, one overview to sketch notes. And then at the next spot, there was like this meaning making like with on your own or with peers and options. And so it was, this, there's just, there needs to be more choice and there needs to be more peer support and there needs to be more self-pacing because quite frankly, reading is a really individual. We have a lot of preferences around reading. Um, I joke all the time, that like, I'm part of a book club with four of my best girlfriends. We meet every month. Um, I, I probably like really like every third book we read, but I read them all because I want to drink wine and talk about the books with my friends, Perfect. you know? So, but like, we all really enjoy different things. And so in classrooms, we're not acknowledging that reality. No. We're also different paced readers. Like I read really quickly, but I have a girlfriend who the reading, she has to do a little bit every single day because she's a slow reader, um, but she loves reading and kids don't get to control the pace. So there's all of these barriers that we put in front of kids. And then we're like, kids don't like to read. Kids won't read. <laughs> Just like right. this, this one size fits all approach with whole group, same text. That's 
probably the biggest barrier to kids wanting to lean into reading? Well, I think wanting and and being able to, to your point, like to your friend, if she doesn't read fast, she wants to read. It's not like she's disengaged, but if she doesn't read it as quickly as you set in your lesson plan for that 15 minutes, she doesn't get in the information, can engage. And then like, personally, I was that student and I started to disengage. I'm like, you know what? I don't need to read your book. I'll find the answers at the end or I'll, I'll just fill in a bubble and do fine. Mm-hmm. Right. I didn't actually want to engage because the conversations were always a name in my perspective anyway. And they were like, find one main idea, mm-hmm. A, B, C, or D. So it's like one, you clearly can hear my like <laughs> my um, issues with that in the classroom. And that's why I wanted to be an English teacher is because there's so many opportunities, like you said, to provide more choice. But it happens across our curriculum and there's opportunities for that. But also, if we never allow young people to read on their own and take ownership over that, how in the world do we expect them to do it once they leave our classrooms? I know. I know. So, I, I totally agree. So we are almost at the end. I want to do a quick rapid fire of a few questions um, just to get your perspective before we wrap up. Okay. So what is one thing we should stop doing in education? Designing a single lesson for a diverse group of learners. <laughs> awesome. What's one thing we should start doing? Asking students for feedback, like regularly. I'd love for it to happen on a daily or weekly basis. Like, how's it going? Love it. What should we keep doing? I think we should keep focusing on community building, like looking beyond just our subject area, but just like really, and I think we do this, but continuing to really put energy toward nurturing like the whole child. Yeah. Love it. Uh, what you always have new projects, new books coming out. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. what are you focusing on learning or creating right now? Yeah. So the, the two books coming out this year are done. Um, the complete guide to blended learning will be out in June. And then my second book shifting to student led with Katie will be out after that, probably in July and August. Um, and I've started to create these like mini courses focused on each different blended learning model and plan to roll those out over the next month and a half so that, you know, teachers who are looking to kind of you know, they want to rest, they want to recharge the summer, but I think also a lot of them are like trying to hit that reset button of how do I approach this work in ways that is going to yield a different experience than maybe they had this year. So working on that um, and really thinking about how to make these models super accessible and these courses very like hands-on and practice-based. Awesome. I can't wait for those. They're going to be amazing. Uh, What's one thing that many people don't know about you? Ooh, um, that's a good question. Um, what don't people know about me? I, gosh, I don't know. I feel like I'm really, you answered this question actually the first time we met about, oh, oh, that's true. Okay. That's when we had a conversation, I think people do assume that because I am such a blended learning advocate that I like love technology and I'm super tech smart. And I, I know certain technology really well, and I'm good with tech and education, but I'm actually not a big technology guru. Like my kids and my partner make fun of me 
all the time because of all this stuff I don't know how to do with tech or I'll just kind of like shuttle onto them and make them do. And then they joke, they're like, oh my gosh, mom, or oh my gosh, Catlin, like, isn't technology like your thing? And I'm like, no, learning is my thing. <laughs> Love it. All right. Do you have a favorite quote or saying? Um, pretty much everything that comes out of Brene Brown's mouth, um, yes. I would love to quote and I like resonates with me <laughs> that, that, that resonates deeply. I'll, I'll go with that. Um, what's something that you're grateful for right now? Mm, my kids, my kids are every time I get frustrated in this work or I'll hit a bump. I, they are the reason and not just them, but I want all kids to have like a better experience. And it's really hard to like especially watching my son go through school and kind of over the years, lose a little bit of that love. It's like, I am so motivated to try to improve experiences because I want what's best for them. And by extension, what, what would be engaging what's best for all kids. Love that. That resonates deeply. Finally, what's your hope for the future of education? If you didn't already just say it. <laughs> I just, I would love for teachers to have the space to allow students to move through learning in, in an unrushed and unforced way. I wish everybody had more creative space to kind of um, find their joy in this work. I think so often we are working toward those standardized tests and we have these pacing guides and it, it just robs us of that time and space to really lean into learning and make it this rewarding and rich experience that it has the potential to be. So like, I'd love to see self-paced student-centered classrooms where everybody's kind of pursuing learning through a lens of interest. Love that. Well, thank you so much. This has been so fun to dive in and just grateful for the work that you're doing and so much alignment. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Learner Center Collaborative Podcast. To learn more about us, head on over to www.learnercenter.org or send us an email at collaborate at learnercenter.org. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag LCCPodcast. Our ending credit music was written and composed by Maddie Hansen, a student at Lambert High School in Cumming, Georgia. Our podcast was produced and edited by Nisha Lakiani. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time.